Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2, 3 through 6 for our scripture reading today or follow along on the screen. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians 3. You've been walking through Colossians 3. My name is Bruce Kendrick, and uh, if you were not here back in September, it's uh, just a privilege to be with you, to get to share the word this morning. Uh, my wife and I co-founded Embrace Texas uh, 15-ish years ago, and uh, if you don't know the genius of Rachel Myers, uh, she gets to work with us, and uh, we love her and Andy to death, uh, as well as this church. Uh, it's one that uh, we left uh, church and went, yeah, we want to be a part of something new that God might be doing in our community uh, several years ago. Uh, man, it feels like maybe 10 years ago that uh, we came and, and helped start Christ Redeemer. And so um, it, it's a privilege to be with you, and uh, I'm excited to share the word. So uh, you've got your Bibles, hopefully, uh, to Colossians 3. Why don't you stand with me and let's read um, the word of God together, starting in verse 1. It's just four short and sweet verses, and yet I found a way to turn this into a 35-minute message. Here we go. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Well, um, about this time of year, every year, our, uh, what we call community groups, uh, do what we call a spiritual assessment. And we come together, uh, we take a little survey about how we think we're doing as a group, and, uh, you know, I submitted my survey of how I kind of thought we were doing, and, and the other group members submitted their survey. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to be with us whenever we kind of all gathered with our, uh, we've got a shepherd that oversees our group and, and just provides direction and admonishment and encouragement and so on. Uh, I wasn't able to be there. And, and so uh, the men went to lunch uh, the following Friday, and I had no idea this was coming, but uh, the guy that, that kind of organizes our group looked at me and he said, well, Bruce, I'm interested because uh, we all gave ourselves like a three and four out of five and you gave us like a one or a two. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I thought we were just going to grab some barbecue together, fellas. Uh, I didn't know we were going to have this discussion right now. But uh, now I'm curious what makes you think we're a three or a four and not a one or a two, but I'll start. And so I just began to unpack uh, some of the things that, that we had previously discussed. So this wasn't like I just stored it all up. That's a bad way to handle conflict. If you're just kind of like storing up everything you have to say to just kind of unleash it all at once, if that's your strategy, stop it. Um, but I just said, look, uh, here's the thing is, is th- this isn't new information. Uh, we're not all serving. 
in some way. That's a, that's a pretty low bar. We're not giving of ourselves. Uh, many of us are still not meeting. Uh, we, we hit the pandemic, and like everybody else, we went home, and you know, we kind of turned on our screens and watched and worshiped from home in you know, the most awkward way. Right, as like, do we sing? Do we stand? What do we do here? And uh, anyway, we still have people in our group that are, are still not coming back in person, right? It's like uh, just forsaking the gathering of the saints. And uh, we've got uh, people in our community group who don't read their Bible regularly. And, um, you know, we meet with some regularity, and uh, there is certainly some authenticity and some fellowship, but I just said, Look, like we've been a group together for the past two or three years, and the height of our fellowship and authenticity together has been a Super Bowl party. And um, I don't know about y'all, but what I see is we're on the, tra- the trajectory of aging out of a vibrant faith, and I've got no interest in it. And if we are going to find ourselves back in this place next year, eating barbecue, you know, assessing ourselves once again, and the height of what we've done to encourage one another, uh, to confess our sins, to, um, to serve those who are in need is a Super Bowl party, I, like, I'm out. Um, man, that, that is just not what I signed up for. And so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not that righteous. I'm not that blameless. I, I certainly uh, hold accountability, right, in meeting with these men and women, with admonishing, with encouraging. And, um, and so it, this wasn't like me trying to relive my, my, uh, my childhood uh, dreams of being in the WWF and just top roping these guys like the macho man Randy Savage. Uh, if you have any frame of reference for who that is, then God bless you. And if you don't, then you need help. Listen, uh, WWF, God's, God's doing something with it. But uh, here's the thing, is I'm keenly aware of my tendency to just kind of check out and to lower the bar. I'm keenly aware of uh, how cultural Christianity can just kind of be like, you know what, we're just checking boxes off. We showed up on Sunday, mostly on time, you know, mostly clean and ironed, maybe not so much ironed. Uh, you know, we're just... You know, we're doing the things, we're doing the best that we can, and yet this morning I want to discuss how we put to death the cultural Christian that lives in every single one of us. Um, because Paul's been writing the last two chapters to the Colossians, keeping in mind that like he doesn't even really know them. Epaphras has come while Paul is in chains, and and said, hey, I, like, write a letter to the Colossians, write a letter to the Laodiceans, and, and spur them on. This is what's going on. And so Paul um, encourages them with this letter. And he, he talks about uh, and exposes the issues of, of the cultural Christianity of his day. Tom talked about a lot of them last week. The influences and the philosophies of the world, the temptations of our flesh, and then he's going to transition here in chapter 3, and um, he's, he's going to instruct us so that we don't resort to shaming and shooting ourselves to love Christ more, because that's so often the direction that we go. And I, I just want to distinguish some elements that evidence cultural Christianity in our lives, in our churches, in our communities, um, so as not to convince us that um, we need to, again, just sort of effort more um, towards a works-based legalistic faith or pour cheap grace 
on the gospel where we just continue to sin is like, hey, it's okay, you're forgiven. And so I think cultural Christianity can be identified where, where Christ is Savior, but he's not Lord. Um, that that there's, there's no uh, room for admonishment with one another. There's, there's no ability to challenge like, hey, can I press in? You said this, but that sounded very generic. Uh, are you saying that you are struggling with lust? Are you, are you saying you are struggling with people-pleasing? Are you saying you are struggling with some addiction? Um, or were you just kind of giving us like lip service on what it is that you're struggling with? Do you really expect anything from me? Or are we just doing this kind of cultural Christianity thing? We just kind of generically talk about the things that we struggle with. Because, again, like Jesus is Savior, and so and we, we get heaven uh, as, as this kind of trinket, this kind of token of our faith. Um, another thing that, that helps us evidence that cultural Christianity is alive and well is vague confession, empty repentance, and hollow forgiveness. And a great question to ask somebody uh, when they seek your forgiveness is, hey, are, are you confessing because... Um, you're truly confessing, or are you confessing because you were caught? Uh, and, and what is it about this confession that is leading you to, to repent, to actually do something different? Or is, is your repentance just kind of like, I'm sorry, and we're just, we're going to keep along this same trajectory? Cultural Christianity is still breathing. Uh, if, you, if you've got little giving, little mercy, little faith, and a little more trying. And cultural Christianity, maybe lastly, uh, certainly not, uh, there could be lots of ways that this is indicated in our lives, but um, through this like shame-induced motivation to perform better in our faith. And so um, this morning, I just, if I could, uh, I, we don't do this great uh, in the church because we don't want to get carried away into, into charismatic visions and things like that. Um, but I, I want to engage uh, just you right now, if you would, just to, to think through the, the cultural Christian that's alive and well in you, or maybe the one that's still barely hanging on. And I just want to lay the body of that dude out in front of us this morning, expose him in the truth that is Christ, and then slay this guy. Because honestly, I find him every single morning when I wake up. And I go, ah, I thought I'd put you to death. And he's like, no, I'm still here. Um, I'm still here to tempt you back into, you know, some, some real easy things that are just comfortable, that people will affirm, because you can do them on the outside. Uh, you don't have to change anything internally. Otherwise, we find ourselves uh, really just continuing on the trajectory of aging out of faith that whenever our children leave our homes, um, the, the having them around other good people, the having them around other good kids, you know, the being able to now go travel according to you know, whatever our income or our retirement account balance might say, that, that becomes God. Because we don't, we don't really need this anymore. This was just for raising our kids to be good people. And, um, man, I just, I don't have 
any interest in showing up to a Super Bowl party tonight and just going, yeah, how are you doing? Fine, great. And that being the peak of, uh, of what it is to be a part of biblical community. Um, and I certainly don't have any interest in retiring into the welcoming arms of Satan. And so Paul gives us three things that not only put our cultural Christian to death, but it actually replaces that sad, passive, lifeless existence that dude just laid out in front of us here with an abiding, repenting, albeit imperfect, but mercy-filled one. In the first part of verse 1, Paul's going to tell us to realize that we were raised. In the second part of verse 1 and verse 2, he tells us to reflect on our routines. We'll dig into that a little bit. And then verses 3 and 4, he tells us to remember that we are restored. And so, again, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Um, the letter is taking a turn. Uh, Paul's no longer focusing on all the things, but he's, he's transitioning with since then. As he's looking back uh, to verse 20, since you died with Christ in chapter 2, since you died with Christ, and then you have been raised with Christ. And the letter's going to pick up intensity, and I've only got the first four verses. And so I, I think um, appropriately Tom asked last week just for you to affirm, did you die with Christ? And uh, because it is the critical question, it is the pivot point in our lives, I'm going to ask it again. Along with a series of others, have you died with Christ? And if you're young in your faith or, or maybe you, you've kind of grown stale and you're just like, okay, well, like, how would I know? How would I know if I've died with Christ? Um, you can turn to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. It was our, our scripture reading this morning. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And so, do you keep his commands? Are you living like Jesus? When you sin, do you repent or do you continue sinning? Or do you just pour this sort of cheap grace? Just like, ah, we'll figure it out eventually. Now, again, I want to differentiate. Like, we're not talking about the process of sanctification. We're talking about licentiousness and the freedom to just kind of go on and kind of mix in whatever the world has to offer with what Christ is placing in front of you to try and keep the cultural Christian just kind of alive and well and appeased and yet also at the same time to try and walk in faith. And it cannot be done. I've tried. It's a miserable existence. And if you're still asking the question of, have I actually died with Christ? I'm not, I'm not here to, to try and encourage you to just doubt your faith and just continue to doubt your faith. But if for sure you're sitting here and you're going, no. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. No, I haven't died with Christ. And, and just in the kindness of God, just so that you know that I'm not trying to manipulate you in any way, I want to ask, what's holding you back? 
For me, it was, man, I don't want to be duped. I'd like to just kind of dip my toe in these waters, but then be able to kind of keep my options open in the event that I learn something later and I go, okay. And, um, and, and thanks to the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life that he went, no, I'm throwing you in. <laughs> uh, you don't get, just get to dip a toe in the water. Uh, that's not how this works. This isn't like some trial run that we're doing together here and uh, you just kind of taste test um, what the Lord has to offer you, but you get to taste and see that the Lord is good. But I get, I get the hesitation to just go, I don't want to be duped. I don't want to become like this radical kind of faithfulness that I don't quite understand. It just seems like it's overcommitted. Like everything has just been given to this guy who died like 2,000 years ago. That's a and that's a hard intellectual barrier for me to get over. Um, you might be somebody who's just, you've got a lot in your past. And uh, maybe you've got a lot going on now where you're just kind of like, I'm, I'm just trying to make ends meet. And uh, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it all. And the, the best thing that I could do with myself this morning was walk here. Or again, you, you might be in that, can, can, I, can I have just enough of Jesus but still hold on to the things of the world. That's what's holding me back, is there are some things of the world that I still really want to hold on to, um, that are comfortable, that are, um, I'm, I'm used to those things. I'm, they're familiar. And so we continue to, to just make those a part of our life, and then we try to just kind of add on things like Sunday morning to then just kind of read a little bit of the scriptures and just maybe to give a little bit. And then obviously, if your answer is yes, if you're going like, yeah, yeah, uh, I have died with Christ, um, then have you envisioned what it was for you to be raised with Christ? Because Paul doesn't say here, since then, you will be raised, he says, since then you have been raised. And keep in mind, like, Paul's got lots of times to choose his, uh, lots of time to choose his words wisely as he's writing. So it, it's not some clerical error that he uses a past tense instead of a future tense. He says in verse 20, since you died with Christ, and now in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. And so I, I just, I don't know when the last time is that you envision what it is to be raised with Christ. And I want to turn your attention to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Because if it's been a while, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're emboldened. Starting in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you have been raised with him. Not you will be, you already have. It's a certainty. This isn't like some ambitious aspiration that we might conjure up so that we could emotionally kind of fit ourselves into a more holy position. This is already a part of your story. It's a future already secured. In a confident humility, not in a religious superiority. Like, listen, I don't walk around and go, like, you know who my Savior is? He's got this robe. He's got tattoos. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Right? Like, it's not this religious fanaticism. And yet, um, there is this confident humility. And it's a future already secured. Not a present reality. But you are being transformed to be like Christ. And so Paul directs us again. It's, admittedly, I've only made it through like half of the first verse. Um, he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so if we're going to put this guy to death, let us be reminded that we have been raised recognizing and then let us reflect on our routines because the the word set your hearts um, just so that I can give some semblance that I've got half a seminary degree uh, is zeteo and and when we talk about hearts like we think about all kinds of things feelings but but Paul specifically talking about setting your affections and desires And when he says, set your minds, he's using the word phreneo, which is more about your meditations and your considerations and not just sort of cognitive, intellectual information that you kind of have rattling around in your head. Because the cultural Christian doesn't stay alive in us uh, because we, we have enough information. The cultural Christian stays alive in every single one of us because our affections and our desires have not changed uh, because our meditations and the things that we consider have not changed. And so we should rightly ask, then what should we set our hearts and minds on? Like he says, uh, set your heart and mind on things above, but then he says, where Christ is. As if to communicate the things above pale in comparison to the who that is above. It's like Paul saying, Christ is our utmost desire, the subject of our affection, not anything else, not stuff, not the rooms that he has prepared, not the crowns that we set down at his feet as we kneel and worship him, not the feast, not the angels singing, but Christ himself. 
And if you're wondering why that might be, why it's not the stuff, is because in the event you haven't already noticed in your own life, I mean, the stuff gets old real fast. It gets real familiar real fast. But the depths and the majesty of the person of Jesus, the mystery of God that we get to explore for eternity, There, there is a reason for passionate pursuit to adventure and to explore and to enjoy all that God has given, all that God is. And then he says, not just where Christ is, but that he is seated at the right hand of God, which has historically symbolized strength and authority and blessing and is Paul's connection back to uh, what King David wrote in Psalm 110 where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Jesus at the Sanhedrin, after he's been arrested, after he's been accused, after he's been um, betrayed, after he's been isolated and left alone and everyone has run away. Matthew 26, he says, From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Paul's connecting us back to these realities. But he says, reflect on your routines because our problem is not information. It's it's not that we don't have enough Bibles. Many of us have multiple Bibles. Um, It's not that we don't have access to commentaries. Uh, Look, we've got more access to information than any human prior to us. It's not, our problem's not knowledge. We know that, um, it's not even sort of assessing our own identity and kind of where we fit in the world. Like, we know we're mortal. We know we're insufficient. Um, We know we're limited. We know we're prone to anxiety. We know we're prone to fear. We know we have insecurities. Our problem's not information. Our problem's love. Our problem's love. We love the wrong things. And if I can evidence it, uh, I'll just, my wife and I, about 20 years ago, we started a, uh, we started out marriage on a real strong foot, drinking uh, lots of Coke and Dr. Pepper, right? And then that like freshman 40 came on, and we were like, okay, um, maybe pasta, garlic bread, and Coke for dinner every night, because it's affordable, I'll tell you that much, um, isn't the wisest choice. But, uh, you know, we, we went, you know, let's do, let's make a wise decision here, and let's get healthy, and let's shift our drinking habits from uh, Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper over to Diet Coke, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, honestly, we've been stuck ever since. But it's not that I don't know that this is not healthy for me, right? Um, Y'all are all looking at me like, you can read it on the can. Like, if you can't pronounce it, you probably shouldn't put it in your body. And yet, every single morning, I mean, Listen, I should buy stock in this stuff is how much we drink. And, um, and every afternoon when that caffeine headache, man, I, I run right back to it. Why? Because my affections are set on it. 
I mean, we, we laughingly say that Diet Coke is a nectar of the gods. And if you don't drink Diet Coke, then you just don't love Jesus enough, right? Like, we, we laugh about these things, and yet our habits just continue to, to connect us to something that we know is not healthy. And so if you're reflecting on kind of your heart and your mind, you're thinking about your own routines, you, you may, as you kind of, I mean, maybe, maybe the cultural Christian is no longer kind of laid out in front of you. Maybe he's just like, do you believe this guy sitting right next to you kind of nudging you? Because he's alive and well, and you're just going, man, what do I do if I don't want more of Jesus? How do I reorient my affections so that I don't just end up trying to figure out how with more willpower, how with more trying, that I might somehow love Jesus more? So the interesting thing about my Diet Coke addiction is it's not just this ethereal idea um, that what has happened is as Diet Coke has hit my tongue and, and gone throughout my body. All the reasons that the manufacturers of Diet Coke uh, have made Diet Coke the way that it is have come into play to change my physiology. So quite literally, what has happened over years is my brain has been rewired so that when I get thirsty, I immediately think of Diet Coke. And the way that God's designed us initially was to survive. Like when you were developing in the womb, God designed you to survive. He gave you a heartbeat. And, and there was no like information, there was no thought going on there. It was just a natural survival mechanism where your cells divided and divided and divided and divided and divided. And, and if you're sitting here now going, what do I do if I don't want more of Jesus? You're probably going to have to change some of the ways that you survive. And what I mean by that is, at, at the very core of, of your biology is a system that controls your breathing without which you would fall dead. So, like, this is a part of God's, like, just creative design. Miraculous. Like, it, and there's not a single one of us in this room that tells our heart to beat, that tells our body temperature to adjust, that changes blood pressure, any of that. Your body does that. God designed it that way. Again, so you wouldn't just fall over. But if you're going to reorient, you're going to reflect on your routines, you're going to have to change the way that you survive. Because so many of us, we survive in a world of, of hurry. And the way that we survive is we rush from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. That there isn't space for rest. That there isn't space for breathing. Additionally, kind of the next layer of, of how God created each one of us is, is this like emotional feeling being that we are. Like God's given us this array of beautiful and wonderful emotions and yet 
Because we are this very affluent society that really loves education and we absorb information like none other, right? Like you've got your podcast on at like two times and you're just, man, give me, I want, I'm, I'm thirsty for more. What often happens is we skip right over some of that survival and that emotional stuff and we jump right up to the cognitive stuff so that we can think better, so that we can impress our friends with more knowledge that we have. But what doesn't change is our emotional maturity. Because before God made you a thinking person, he made you a feeling person. And before he made you a feeling person, he made you a surviving person. And so if you're going to reorient your affections towards Christ, that's going to have to be done initially at a survival level. And then it's going to have to be done at an emotional level. And it's not to disengage the information or the knowledge or the truth that we have as much as it is to remember that this is how God's designed you. And, and recognizing that in the midst of all of that, like 80% of the cells in your brain are what we call mirror neurons. Quite literally, God created you to reflect the environments around you, the words that are spoken, the sounds that you hear, the temperature, the, the attitude. And, and you've been reflecting it ever since. And so I, I want to, in some ways, ask the question of, okay, knowing some of what we know about our own design and how God beautifully and wonderfully created us, um, how did Christ set his heart and mind on things above. What, is, what does Christ do? Because we know that from, from birth, we have this sin nature. And, and so our image and our identity, our purpose, our possessions, all kind of get twisted and convoluted. So it's no wonder that, that if our cultural Christians still sort of alive and breathing, that should not necessarily be shocking. And yet, in the passage in 1 John, it says, like, live as Jesus lived. And yet, what many of us have done is we've gone, okay, so live as Jesus lived. So, okay, I'm gonna, we'll, we're going to show up on Sunday mornings. And um, we're gonna, we'll sing the songs. And we'll give a little bit. Very little of that would reflect how Jesus lived. I mean, when we look at how Jesus lived, like we see a man that is fasting. We see a man that um, is praying regularly, is often praying in, in, in solitude, removing himself from distractions. And yet, what do every single one of us do when we sit down to read our Bibles in the morning? What do, what do every single one of us do whenever we sit down at lunch to talk to a friend or a coworker? And you reach your hand down in your pocket, you pull that thing out, you check what time it is, you see what notifications you just got, you're like, yeah, go ahead. A notification comes up as you're in the middle of prayer. And then what do you do? We don't think about it at all. Right? It's just become second nature. Why? Because our hearts and our affections are set 
Now, I, I, I'm not saying that your cell phone or, or whatever is like Satan's way of keeping you distracted. I, I'm saying it's a part of your own heart. It, it's a part of your routine. It's a part of my routine. I had a meeting recently, and, and um, I was guilty. I mean, uh, honestly, I wasn't that interested <laughs> in what we were talking about. And uh, I remember just getting that little buzz in my pocket and just going, okay. I'm just reading through, and then I went, oh, that's kind of important. And I began to reply. And in this man's kindness, he just went, do we need to reschedule our meeting? And I tried to pawn it off like, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. This is just, and it was so convicting, such a kindness from him, this older gentleman, to just go, hey, do we need to reschedule our meeting? And I wonder if, if for you, if, if in the routines that you've set up and the things that you've done, if at any point in time the Holy Spirit might just communicate lovingly and kindly and gently and humbly, hey, do we need to reschedule this meeting? I don't seem to have your full attention. I don't seem to have your full affection. And yet there have been in any number of times that I've gone, you know what, Holy Spirit, yeah, maybe we, we might need to because like this is ministry. Like this is really important stuff. Like I'm helping people here. <laughs> and God's gone. Hey, set your heart and your minds on things above where Christ is. Set your heart and mind where Christ is. Um, our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in other parts of the world, uh, when they start thinking about the spiritual disciplines, the practices to, to move their affections towards Christ, uh, they don't usually start with things like uh, corporate worship, usually because it's illegal. Uh, they don't usually start with reading their Bibles, typically because they don't own them, they don't have access to them. Um, one of the first disciplines that they start is the, uh, the spiritual discipline of poverty um, because they know that soon uh, their property will be confiscated, their businesses will be targeted, um, and so they start to practice uh, reducing their consumption, um, their comparison, their possession, and they start to increase their contentment and their rest, and their relationships with one another. And uh, for you, if that might just be a good starting point, that you might maybe not think, how can I try to read my Bible more, but how could I just start to reduce my consumption, my comparison, my possession? Um, Paul gets very specific in the remainder of the letter. Uh, I'm honestly a little sad that uh, I'm not preaching on a passage a little further down because uh, you were in for a treat of one that I was kind of like, it was a hard left for me that I was like, man, okay, I didn't see that coming uh, with uh, a couple of guys that are, are mentioned. But he, um, he still directs us back to what is critically important is really the same thing that he started with in verse 1. Uh, as he turns to the Colossians' attention again to revisit who they are and what has happened already with Christ and just going, remember that you were restored. And so in verse three, he says, for you died 
and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Um, this is not a, like, a great selling point for the 21st century uh, Western enlightened American mind. Like, nobody's selling, hey, you want to go die and hide? Uh, and yet the benefits of being dead and hidden, um, I think what happens is, is, is we hear that and we go, what, how about not being dead? How about being alive? And how about more of me? Like, how about I be up front more? How about I be free? Tom talked a little bit about it last week of sort of the freedom and the licentiousness that we take because the Bible hasn't prescribed um, exactly what we should or shouldn't do in every single situation that we're actually required to grow in wisdom and discernment. But Paul says, no, die and hide. And listen, it's, this isn't like neutral ground um, because if you're not dead and hidden with Christ, you'll create a religion out of something and someone else. Uh, I was on my way to my community group a couple weeks ago, and uh, this is about 11.30, and I'm driving down the road. We live in Richardson. This is like Coit and Campbell. And up on the right, I mean, right, it's Sunday, 11.30, traffic is light. And uh, up on, in front of me, I see this full parking lot, and I know there's not a church there. And I drive by, and I go, that is a gym, that gym is packed. That gym is packed at 11.30. And listen, there's nothing wrong with going to the gym, but it was evidence to me that if I'm not dead and hidden in Christ, I'm going to make religion as something or someone else. Um, I'm going to try and find my identity and my purpose in having a healthier body in uh, trying to get a spouse or a girlfriend or whatever it is, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna tie myself up into that. I'm gonna make a religion there. And, and if you have ever seen people spend money on athletic equipment or uh, athleisure, uh, man, you know. And that, that thing might as well be a full-blown religion. And yet, if you are not dead and hidden with Christ, you don't get restored with him in life and appearance and glory. And you've got to imagine and explore and define and borrow and maintain your own boundaries for everything in life. You've got to figure out, like, okay, like, what is this sexuality thing? Is it, can I just do whatever I feel like? What is, what is family? What is right and wrong? Is there a right and wrong? Do, do I have a future? Do, should I be obedient in, in, as I'm like figuring this all out, right? Like the highest um, value of the cultural Christian, the society today is sort of like just do what is best for yourself. And in some ways I just want to ask, which self? Like the past self? Like the kid that thought, like you were going to become an astronaut or the president or a fireman or a policeman or your present self 
who's like, just do what feels good in the moment, or your future self. Like, which, which of these in this kind of reorientation of your religion and your affections and your thoughts and your considerations are you going to be obedient to? And that is a heavy burden that Christ did not intend for you to bear, which is why he gave you his word. This library of truth that you don't have to imagine and explore and, and borrow and redefine all these different things. And so um, maybe the best news of this morning is uh, I don't have anything for you to change this week. Okay? Um, I want to double down on discouraging you from trying more willpowering more, performing better as your next step. And instead, uh, I just want you to become aware and do a bit of an audit of your heart and your mind, of where you spend your time, uh, maybe where you spend your money. Don't change a thing. Um, but ask some of the questions of how does media or technology influence you? How does your, your bank account balance determine your peace? Uh, does hurry define your pace, or can you rest? And then what relationships and routines impact you? Don't change a thing. And when you gather together, um, I just want you to ask this question of one another and press in. Don't be generic. Be specific. Where are you spending your time? Where does your heart and mind go? And that if this morning you're here and and you're just like, yeah, uh, um, I may not be dead in Christ. I may not be hidden in Christ. Um, and there are people here that would love to share the gospel with you. And it's not a gospel to come and just kind of take some pieces. Uh, it's an invitation to come and die. It's different. It's different, admittedly. Uh, and we should get used to different. Uh, let me pray. God, thank you for, uh, one, just continuing to bring to mind uh, the fact that uh, maybe every morning uh, we've got to put to death the cultural Christian in each one of us, uh, the one that's compelled to the one that's compelled to, uh, to just do enough, uh, to just read enough. Um, that lacks contentment, that lacks satisfaction in you. And yet, thank you for being a God that's designed us in such a way that uh, you've allowed us to engage with one another in community, to be encouraged, to be lifted up, to be admonished, to be challenged, um, that you've given us the capacity uh, to exercise and, and to, to have our, our own um, agency. Like, we're not robots. We, like, we get to, to envision um, what you would have for us and pursue after those things. And so, God, would you, would you reorient our hearts as, as we um, think about the things that we do love uh, that don't draw us close to you? Thank you for your word, this church. Uh, thank you for our time together today. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.